Ephesians chapter 2, uh, he's, uh, Paul has uh, taken us uh, from this place in explanation uh, in regard to our uh, uh, death and our sin and uh, all that uh, you know has um, caused us to be separated from God as the human race. And now he says, the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1, you are made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now he's going to discuss a number of things um, doctrinally in this passage that are significant. Um, in particular, I just want to uh, talk about this deadness and the life that he's uh, creating because uh, there's uh, sort of a warped sense of, of what is meant uh, in Christianity uh, about these things. The idea, uh, you know, of being dead in the sins and being made alive in Christ, uh, it has the sense that in the area of the spiritual, we are dead. Uh, he he even talks about the fact that you know we are alive in our sinfulness so we we had a life in sin and, and you know there are portions to ourself that by implication he talks about being alive the intellect uh you know the emotion these things are alive he's the deadness is in the spirit i i'm making a point because uh, the life that is created is certainly created by God. It is certainly a gift from God. But there is choice involved in this that doesn't violate the sovereignty of God. He's given us free will, and he's extended to us the opportunity to choose him and thereby receive this gift of eternal life. So the spiritual life comes to us. So spiritually we're dead. But, I mean, if we just back away from all of uh, the debates over Calvinism versus Arminianism and just get really simple, of course we have our logic and our reason and our free will. Uh, I, I watch as our enemy polarizes Christianity over this issue and, you know, wants to insist you, you didn't have anything to do. You know, if God had not first made you alive, uh, you know, in, spiritually, then you would never have responded to him. All these strange things. Uh, of course we have free will. How does that fit into the sovereignty of God? Well, someday we'll have a better understanding of it. For right now, the scripture is describing it to us from ways that are outside this earthly realm. And, and there's really no reason for us to divide over that debate. Uh, you know, what a silly thing uh, for Christianity to allow its message to be diminished or nullified by that silly argument. You know, was it choice or was it God's sovereignty? Well, did you choose to raise your hand and accept Christ? <laughs> yeah, but that was the sovereign will of God. Yeah, but did you choose? 
Okay, just choose. You know, stop the debate, stop the argument, stop the division within the body of Christ over this issue. Uh, you know, it doesn't lend any greater clarity. It doesn't lend any deeper relationship with Christ. It certainly doesn't result in any greater work being done by either side of the argument. You know, we, we are all together in Christ and, and thereby our obedience accomplishes the very thing that the Lord wants to accomplish. So you are made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. It, has, it is actually that specific. He's talking about the sinfulness of our spiritual life and the way that we lived. It's, it's been described that the dead man doesn't have any conflict or worry or concern about the fact that he's in a casket. He's very comfortable there. There's, there's not any concern. There's no panic. If you're suddenly made alive in that coffin, you're going to be full-on panicked to get out of that coffin. You aren't going to want to be confined there. If you were, in fact, dead, and now you've been resurrected back to life, so it is with our sin and our trespasses. We were very comfortable there. We had no conscience to be clear of it. We, we didn't want uh, or desire uh, to be removed from it. It was when we came to life. So he's specifically talking about you know, the, the trespasses and the sins, the things that we purposely and actually accidentally did that were in opposition to God. So we walked in them, you which, which once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So a few points there. You know, walking according to the course. Uh, there's a pattern. You know, you can think of this as like a race course or, you know, a track or even more uh, accurate might be uh, the rails that a train runs on. You know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so there was a predictable path that you, you went on. And that was determined by the you know the spirit that that works in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air. This gives us a sense of the authority of Lucifer, the authority of Satan. He you know, he really does have a position of power. Notice, you know, he's not the king. He he's not the ultimate authority. He has a position. He has a power that should be respected. It's, it's not uh, something that, you know, we see certain uh, pastors, certain ministers, you know, claiming authority, demanding authority, talking about how they have risen up and they're going to stomp on the devil. And they've got James, James, Jude, rather, very specifically tells us that the false teachers will speak very flamboyantly against the dignitaries, meaning these spiritual forces, these spiritual entities, such as Lucifer, such as the demons. 
You know, that's what that's one of the things that uh, will be a telltale sign as to whether you're listening to a legitimate teacher or a false teacher. They will they will very often demonstrate their faults by wandering off into this claiming authority and treading upon and putting down and stamping upon. You know, Jude specifically says that Michael the archangel in regard to this didn't even dare to bring a reviling accusation against the devil himself, but said, the Lord will rebuke you. Yeah, there's an authority greater than you, and it's the Lord himself. You know, no one here on earth, uh, nor apparently the way it's described there in Jude, or in heaven, should you know try to supersede the authorities that are in place? God gives you know the archangel authority and power to conquer. He will. Uh, we we see Satan taken into custody in the book of Revelation, bound in a chain and thrown into hell for a thousand years. Uh, but these entities really do have authority and power. The way to overcome them uh, is why I slipped up and said the book of James was described by James when he said, draw near to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You want to see the devil run away, it's, it's when you draw near to God. Uh, the, the devil will not want to be in the presence of the Lord. You find yourself in the presence of the Lord, you'll find yourself away from the presence and the influence of our enemy and our enemies, plural. So they do have authority, they do have power, and they do have a, you know, a particular location. Uh, the idea is the spiritual realm. I've, I've heard some strange teachings uh, about how demons and devils and the devil himself are in the sky. And, uh, you know, weird stuff go on and on about how, you know, that's why there's so much evil on the radio, because they control the airwaves. And they, uh, I mean, it gets weird. Yeah, it's just literally talking about the spiritual realm. The, the, the heavenly places is, you know, like when Paul says, you know, I knew a man that was caught up into third heaven. It isn't that there are layers or levels of heaven. He's talking about, you know, during the day, uh, the, um, the water particles and the oxygen in the atmosphere causes it to be that the sunlight reflects them and you can see the blue sky that's around you and the Greeks referred to that as the first heaven the birds flew in the first heaven and when the sun would set and the sunlight's no longer bouncing off those particles so that you see blue you can see out through them and then they would say that the stars and the moon exist in the second heaven and if you passed away and went to be in the spiritual state of existence then you were in the third heaven uh, so this statement here is simply to say uh, that those authorities that we contend with are in spiritual places. Uh, it's, it's not like you can, you know, go to the devil's hangout and, uh, you know, blow it up and never have to deal with the devil again. Uh, you know, there, there aren't those types of things. There, there are people who develop really strange teachings about, uh, you know, what the Bible is giving us for very simple facts. So... The, the we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, and and the devil who exists in the spiritual realm has uh, constructed and formed in the hearts of men a pattern of behavior that we all, without Christ, existed in. 
and we've been delivered that. You know, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, uh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So a few things to break down there. Uh, we conducted ourselves on that same course, the lusts of the flesh and the mind. So very often, what was sinful, what was was habitual sinful practice, was associated with things that were designed by nature for us to participate in. You know, uh, sex is uh, part of God's plan for the human race. To be obsessed with it and sin with it was not God's intention. Uh, you know, to have pleasure in this world was God's design in his plan for the human race. But, you know, the pursuit of sinful pleasures was not what he wanted. Food was designed for us to consume and nourish ourselves with, but to be obsessed with it. So, so many things that are of the course of this world and are of sinful practice stem from what is naturally within us. You know, I'll take even uh, the point of murder. You're supposed to be angry with certain things. When things are done that are wrong, when injustices are performed, when you have experienced certain travesties, anger is a natural result. Not being governed by God, being a man or a woman of sinful nature, according to the course of this world, that rage can turn into fighting, violence, even murder. You know, things that were by nature set in us, things of the flesh, let loose on the lusts of the flesh or the lusts of the mind, turn into things they're not supposed to be. You know, they're corruptions and perversions of the very you know, order that God had established. And thereby, by nature, we were children of wrath. By nature. You know, I make all of that point. I go through that great explanation, or, you know, I mean that, not great explanation in, in quality, perhaps too much is what I mean, to, to make the point that, you know, you don't have to have incredibly wicked influences to end up being incredibly wicked. You know, the devil himself, you know, described here, the prince of the power of the air, he doesn't have to influence your life in order for you and I to end up being very sinful people. Just the natural course of things can lead us to very, very sinful practices and behavior. Now, it is interesting to note that we were, past tense, children of wrath. Okay, That isn't uh, the idea of we were wrathful. It's the idea of what we were going to receive rather than reward, rather than eternal life, was wrath. We were going to receive God's wrath. We were going to receive God's judgment and his punishment. We were destined for wrath. That's, again, very doctrinally significant in that the scriptures describe, and Paul even here is describing the fact that there is a coming day where the wrath, like definite article the, the wrath of God, is going to be poured out on the earth. And those that are children of wrath, uh, God's wrath is designed for them. 
So we have been removed from that wrath. We've been resurrected from the death of our sin and our trespasses and been transported into the life in Christ. So, you know, all of these people that are like, no, you have to go through the tribulation. And then at the end, that's when you're going to experience, you know, the rapture and God's blessing and, you know, his rewards. The wrath of God, the children of wrath are going to receive God's wrath, not us. We're not looking forward to that. We're not, you know, there's a line that's, you know, pointed straight at punishment. And and there's a whole bunch of people that are in that line. You know, it's a really wide line. Like, you know, the highway to hell. They're all headed towards that wrath. We're not in that line. We're on a very narrow path (laughs) that leads to paradise, the presence of the Lord. You know, Jesus says to that thief at the cross, I tell you today that you will be with me in paradise. You know, you're going to experience paradise today. It's not a someday thing. It's a right now thing. We've been removed from that wrath. Verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, a lot of commentators, uh, the way this Greek language is written out here, they go on at length about the richness that is described here. It, it's, uh, it's so beyond our ability to understand what is intended by Paul and what is intended by the Lord. You know, I mean, it's, it's, we hear about these incredibly wealthy things, and especially, you know, recently uh, certain people, you know, just showing up and paying for everybody to have dinner, you know, at a restaurant or they're, you know, they're someplace and they pay for everybody to enter the theme park. It's remarkable that somebody could do that. This is, uh, you know, so far beyond that. The richness of his mercy. God literally has the ability to pay every single one of our debts. You know, all, any sin uh, would separate us from God. So, now think about, you know, if somebody showed up right now and said, I, I want to pay all your debt literally for the rest of your life. Like, like right now, I want to give, what's it going to take you to How do I pay off your home? How do I pay off your cars? Um, what do you think it's going to take uh, financially to keep you in vehicles and housing for the rest of your life. What's the depreci- depreciation of your house? What were you intending to retire? Where were you planning on retiring to? You know, and you know, they, they just sit there and add and add and add and add, and they cover your entire debt, and then they cover everybody in the room's debt, and then they cover everybody on the planet's debt. They they have the ability to pay it off. This is this is perhaps somewhat a reflection of. Jesus Christ's capability. This this mercy that's being described here, the richness of it, it it doesn't play well in the English language. You know, it's it's really the idea of you've got no idea the wealth you've tapped into. You know what it is that you've you've touched on. I uh, in uh, reflecting on this and teaching on this, one of the sad things that I've had to relay uh, over the years is there are, there are many people who have this blank check in their hands and they'll never cash it. 
There are many people who, you know, this has freed us from our sin, freed us from God's wrath. Uh, they're, they're sitting in an unlocked jail cell for the rest of their life. They could, they could step out of their bondage into the freedom that is Christ by, by just getting up and walking out. And they will not. They do not. And, and, and very often those that will sit in that will blame God. You know, they'll point the finger and say, if he had just come in here, if he had just freed me, I was ready, I was anxious, I wanted it. No, you really didn't. <laughs> he's provided all for you. And and he's, he's gone through the great process of showing you, of, of proving it out to you, and you still choose. You still choose to stay. Well, how, how sad a commentary that is. That, that people miss the great wealth that Christ has provided. You know, I know none of us in this room, right? Small meeting this evening. I know none of us in this room have missed it. We, we are so glad, so anxious, so grateful uh, for those great riches and the way that it has, you know, given us the freedom and delivered us from these things because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we're going to get into this very obvious depth here. But, you know, when we were dead, this actually, you know, some people, this is, this is where they want to really start to divide Calvinism from Armenianism. And honestly, the verse makes a greater clarity to it in that you were dead in your sins and Christ resurrected you. You know, they say, see, so it was Christ that did it, not me. That's the predestination, and they want to go all the way down that road with all of that discussion. It's as simple as, you know, uh, the, the person who is uh, experiencing the resurrection is having the deadness of their life resurrected. You know, they were, he's even describing, as I've said, you were alive in your sin. You were alive in your conscience. You were alive in, in the practices you were participating in. It's that spiritually you were dead. When you made the choice and said, I recognize that spiritually I'm dead. Would you please resurrect me that he resurrected us to life? That's why it's a free gift. That's why there's no involvement in it. We couldn't resurrect ourselves. We, of our free will, we could say, I recognize my deadness. Please grant me life. You know, there was that choice, free will, submission in the circumstances. We couldn't do that, you know, a blessed thing about accomplishing that work. Right? It wasn't like, oh, okay, I recognize intellectually I'm dead in my sins. So let me do a whole bunch of things to earn your unmerited favor. And then you could res resurrect me to life. Because then it would be of works. You know, of my intellect, of my mind, of my emotion, of my thought. I had accomplished somehow, you know, the starting of the life. It, it is simply to say, wow. I am a dead human being and need that life. And would you please grant it to me? And he gives it to us in that way. He raised us up together and made us sit together 
in the heavenly places. Now notice this. In Christ Jesus. Not with Christ Jesus. The with is coming someday. Right? We'll literally be with him. Presently, this is a positional thing. We're, we're in Christ. Christ is seated in the heavenlies. And, and we are with him in that we are in him. Right? Follow. The description here is our death and our resurrection. We were resurrected from the deadness of our sins into a newness of life. The symbol of that was our baptism. And again, it's just the symbol. You, know, you talk to uh, members of the Roman Catholic institution and they have the mindset that by their baptism they have achieved salvation. You know, literally a number of years ago, I was interviewing a headmaster who had come from a Roman Catholic school system and was applying to be part of another school system that I was on the board of directors. And, you know, I was startled that we as a Protestant church were even interviewing someone of Catholic origin. But OK, he's got credentials. So I'm saying to him, you know, with the whole board there present, I'm saying to him, you know, when were you born again? And he says, well, I was baptized when I was, yeah, I, I get you were baptized. <laughs> when were you born again? And, and, and in the end, he was perplexed by the question. Literally had no understanding. So here's a man of profound biblical accomplishment, a career, you know, in his senior years, who's no knowledge, he has no knowledge of being born again, personally doesn't understand what I'm talking about, and he's definitely had no experience of being born again. Religion will not provide you with that. It never does. Christ alone, in a submissive relationship to him, provides that for us. The great work that the Lord has accomplished. In that resurrection from our sins into the newness of life. That's the raised up together that it's being referred to. We realize I'm dead. Christ, listen to this, you guys. Christ joined us as the human race in death. Think about that picture. He came here with the singular purpose of dying so that he could be resurrected out of that death to show us, if you want to follow me, you can literally follow me right up out of this death. I'm going to plunge myself into this death so that when I turn around and reverse course and come up out of death, you'll recognize you have the capability to do the same thing. This isn't just the rapture. Just the resurrection. This is literally him saying, right now, you're in your dead sins. My resurrection proves to you, you can rise up out of that. And, and find and experience and come to a newness of life. You, you can take that statement right there in verses 4 through 6 
and lay all of Romans chapter 6 right over it and have a very neat understanding of what Paul is saying about, you know, what then? Shall we continue in sin? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were resurrected into a newness of life? We, We have stepped out of the old way, the old man, the course, the pattern of this world and the prince of the air into a new way of living. He's going to talk specifically about how, you know, again, it isn't works. It is it is the evidence of life. The, the fact that we have been resurrected is proven by our behavior. Right? Our behavior doesn't provide us with that resurrection. It's an evidence that the resurrection into a newness of life has occurred in our lives. If it's not present, then you need be concerned about whether you have been resurrected. Uh, are you in a newness of life? You know, are you walking as a new man or a new woman? No, no. You profess Christianity, but you live according to the old course. I'm not saying you're not saved, right? There are many Christians who wallow around in the filth, but it should be an alarm to you. You know what I'm saying? It, it should be the sort of thing where it freaks you out. It's it's like it's literally like you've been resurrected. You were dead. And you woke up and you were in the coffin and you freaked out and you sprang out of the coffin and you realized you were just in the funeral home. But periodically you just, you like that. That coffin was really comfortable. You know, how deranged are you to go back and just sleep in coffins every now and then? You were dead, man. You were dead, woman. Get out of that life. Don't go back there. Don't, Don't play around with such a thing. That's a scary, somebody, you know, I don't know. I won't go any further with that illustration. But, but the newness of life belongs to us. And we need to live that way. The evidence of our newness. Uh, Paul uh, also says in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, uh, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I really enjoyed going to Europe. A couple of years ago, well, that was a lot of fun. I went to Iceland, you know, we were down in Hungary and, you know, Germany. We ranged all over. We were in Poland for a while. And it just a uh, really great experience. One of the things that really bugged me was no breakfast. You know, um, just uh, Abby's shaking her head adamantly, you know. And, and by no breakfast, I mean they eat basically lunch. That's their first meal. If you get up at 5 a.m., what you're going to be served is what we would consider lunch. There'll be cold cuts and vegetables for your sandwich, but they don't even eat it that way. You know, but what is available, we would consider like these. This is all lunch material. There's no toast and pancakes and eggs and sausage and bacon. None of that. Not cereal. No way. None of it at all. Yeah. When we uh, came Back through Norway, that was the first place. So we've been gone for 18 days, and that's the first place where we landed where you could get breakfast. And it was actually labeled on the menu, American breakfast. You know, with the uh, Norwegian kroni, I spent $65 for Lori and I to have breakfast. You know, it's just ridiculous inflation there. Everything's super expensive here at the airport. The point I'm trying to make is 
we landed in America. I wanted a cheeseburger so bad. You know, just, just no, I would not even a high quality one. Just take me to McDonald's or Burger King and let me get fries. This stupid thing. Every week we, we conk out. It's, it may still be going. Forgive me, guys. I'm going to end this and restart. It goes, it goes black. So um, I got to start the whole thing over again. We'll get past this. I had a, a new camera here today, and everything was supposed to be glorious and wonderful, and that camera was a piece of junk. So I had to literally box it up and take it all back. My, my mom, in particular, is she wants to be here every service and uh, because you know she's got potential health risks in being out in the public. She, when I leave each day, she's like, you make sure you get that Facebook on. So, yeah. Yeah, I was all excited uh, for it. And I brought it here, and I literally, I was so bugged by it. I ended up taking it uh, right back uh, to the post office and mailing it right back. So, okay, we're back, according to this. So, um, the idea of... Our citizenship is in heaven. We're currently seated in Christ. And our citizenship is in heaven, right? Fun to go to Europe. Amazing experiences. So good to be back home, right? Because my citizenship is here. Uh, this world, our citizenship as believers is, is in the presence of the Lord. It's in heaven. I, I'm The longing, the aching, the pain... Uh, the difficulty you face every day—that's uh, because you're a citizen of heaven. You're not—you're not a citizen of earth. You're not part of these course and these patterns of sin and, and, and trespasses and all these things. Even if, even if, as a believer, you fail and falter, that's why you're so heartbroken. That's why you can't stand it, because you're not a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. There are many explanations and many illustrations that are given by all of the greatest teachers throughout uh, Christianity. Uh, one of the best uh, descriptions is just as far as a modern thing that I heard uh, just today. Actually, what, I was reviewing this and um, read a commentator that was saying that uh, you know people often confuse the whole issue of faith and grace, even within this passage. Uh, an illustration would be that it is the water that quenches your thirst, the grace. And the faith is the hose by which it is delivered. You know, you might even be dying of thirst and see a hose and then at some point think, oh goodness, there, now I can have a drink. If it's not attached to anything that's going to run through it that'll quench your thirst, then forget it. The, the faith isn't going to do a, a blessed thing for you. It's the grace of God that provides you with salvation. And therein is the explanation of we have no part in it. Yes, your faith provides you with salvation, but many people have faith, 
but they're not relying upon the grace of God. It is the grace alone that provides us with what is needed in order to see salvation accomplished in our life. And the source of that is God, and it comes to us strictly from God. It, it is not of us in any way. The conduit through which it flows is our faith, surely. But in the end, it is Christ that has provided us with that. His grace accomplishes that work. Uh, it was... Uh, David Gusick that said the work of salvation is God's gift. Paul's grammar here indicates that the words apply to the gift of salvation mentioned here in Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 8 and not directly to the faith mentioned in these verses. You know, faith is one element within it. The salvation is strictly according to the deliverance of God's grace. Nothing else. And that's and we kind of know that, yeah, of course. And yet there is some confusion within the body of Christ about how that works and what it means. God's God's grace alone. The it refers to salvation, not faith. Doesn't have any, you know, right? Uh, Abigail, Cheryl, making you guys diagram the sentences and you know what portion belongs to what portion. The it alone belongs to salvation, not faith. Uh, so it's not of ourselves. Refers to the salvation, not to faith in this passage. So just uh, exterminator there, taking care of that bug for us. Appreciate that. If that had landed on one of the ladies, there would have been, you know, definite, or one of the guys, perhaps, who knows, would have been an interesting experience. So uh, then in verse 9, that statement, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we know that with a certainty. You know, we've heard that so many times. The, The challenge for us becomes the practical application. Uh, And we see it internally and externally in the church. Uh, we see uh, within our own hearts that we get troubled and disturbed, thinking that somehow um, our our behavior or perhaps even our failures have left us in a place where our salvation is compromised. And in the end, it's not possible. I mean, Christ alone is the source of salvation. I think this is very significant for us, especially to teach because uh, we kind of settle into it as we get older and, and as we mature in the faith. But boy, you might want to make really certain about talking to your children. That they understand that if you're trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you have it. He's given it to you. It's a gift. It's not something you're going to earn. You know, if they get home early and you're not there, are they going to spend an hour, 45 minutes, two hours, wondering if they missed the rapture? Are they going to go to bed at night worried and concerned that they haven't been worthy? They're not worthy. (laughs) None of us is. Christ has given us salvation as a gift. Are you accepting it? Do you believe it? Do you trust him? Right. You know, you got to have certain things get cleaned up. You do need things out of your life. You do need to include things and exclude things from your life. But the salvation comes from the source of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. It's not of works. 
Externally, so internally, there's a little bit of an explanation. Externally, we then begin to examine other Christians. And now what we're doing is, well, thank goodness I'm not like that guy. You know, essentially, we're praying the same thing that the hypocritical Pharisee did. Why? Just because they belong to a different denomination. Somehow, we consider ourselves better. Somehow, we consider ourselves more saved, or them less saved, or I'm definitely saved, and they're definitely not saved. You know, are they trusting Christ for their salvation? Praise God, let's go preach that together. The world needs to hear that message. Our enemy, you guys, right? Can't beat them, join them. Our enemy has gotten into the church so deep. Just twisting and turning everybody against just, you know, if he can't get us to argue and bicker over big things, you know, he'll find some microscopic thing and, and, and divide us so that our message is diminished to the sick and dying world that needs to hear it. It's an unfortunate thing. This, this issue right now, you know, of coronavirus and whether the churches are going to open or they're not going to open. I think it's a terrible thing that we're arguing about it at all. And listen, right? I opened up earlier than most churches, even the ones that are opening. I opened up like two weeks earlier than most of them. Just I was just sick of this whole thing of somebody telling me when and where I can worship Jesus Christ and when and where I can lead other people to worship Jesus Christ. So I just defied what was written and went right ahead and opened the church up. Right, And then people start coming to me like, yeah, and that terrible church down the street hasn't even opened. Yeah, well, apparently Christ didn't call them to open. They're as much our brothers and sisters today as they were yesterday. Uh, you know, and, and then I hear that there are some down in those churches who are speaking ill of us. Can you believe those guys up there opened? You know, don't they care about anybody? Are we not brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, if there is some concern along those lines, like how about we sit, you know, a little more than six feet apart and talk about it? Let's just talk about it. There is no division in us. You know, what a shameful thing if those who have, you know, social distance has stayed at home and worn their mask end up in heaven right next to the people who didn't do any of that. Division. Do they you know, divide and conquer? Tell me you don't see that going on, right? We haven't hardly started to see us to tip past the peak of this whole coronavirus thing. You know, you can start to think, well, maybe, maybe we're going to get back to some normalcy. And now racial division is exploding in our country. Nobody can see the tactic of the enemy. You know, is everybody blind to the fact that you know the enemy wants us all to just kill one another? You know, I've given that illustration many times. Uh, my uh, father-in-law on my wedding day, my three groomsmen all wanted to throw my father-in-law in the swimming pool. And I said, you know, you got to understand, this guy's a Vietnam vet. He's serious as a heart attack. You don't you don't just walk up to Alan Champney, grab a hold of him, and throw him in the pool. You know, he's liable to just hand you back some appendage, you know what I'm saying, and send you on your way. <clears throat> uh, so oh, well, I, I said, how about we just tackle him? All, let's all go in the pool together. 
We'll just run up to him and tackle him and we'll all go in the pool together. That's probably the only safe way. You know, if you think you're going to walk up and grab this man, throw him in the pool. Well, I go in the house and get out of my tuxedo and come back up on the pool deck and my three groomsmen see me and they think that that's the signal. So they jump up and they run straight at my father-in-law. I turned left right then and went right across the pool deck and watched from a distance as one, two, three, he launched them right into the pool. They came up to me later. Joe Hope had a black handprint on the side of his ribcage where my father-in-law dropped down and just by the, grabbed him by the neck and drove his hand underneath his armpit and launched that guy like four and a half feet through the air into the pool. The devil's not going to hell without a fight, you guys. He's, he's, he's going, and he knows that, and he's taking everybody he can with him. You know, every passing day, if he can get us to, you know, wipe one another out, we're just doing his work. If he can get us to destroy the denomination and the church down the road with our mouth, he'll do that so that no one will listen to any of our message. Our message is Christ and him crucified and the salvation that is provided, Right? If the church down the road never opens their doors again, and they just do Facebook for the remainder of their days, praise God. I wish they'd open their doors, but praise God, right? If a whole bunch of churches open their doors and just let everybody come in and hug and shake hands and do whatever without any masks on, praise God for them. The division is exactly what our enemy wants us to do. We, are, we, have, we have stopped obeying the mandates of our king, and we are now serving our enemy when we're allowing division to take place like that. You know, uh, you know this whole thing of, oh, you know, they're, they're not opening their church, and they should, and don't they understand what the Constitution says? And just listen, each church, each pastor, each board of directors, right? They stand and fall by the word of their master, which is Jesus Christ. As we stand and fall by the word of our master. What I say about them doesn't change how they're going to be rewarded. What they say about me doesn't change how I'm going to be rewarded. We, we each need to hear clearly for ourselves what Christ has called us to. And most definitely we can agree that there's a unifying message of Jesus Christ shed blood which provides salvation for any that would receive it. Division. So, so incredibly unfortunate. So, back to the discussion at hand, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship. And that term is poema, which we get the word poem from. Very intricately crafted, melodic, you know, poem is what is being said. That's what you are. You are a poem. You're a work of musical art. You're a work of melody. Uh, you know, you, you may think, wow, I am out of tune. <laughs> I'm just, it's, I'm, if, I, if, I, if I'm a, you know, a song to God, it's probably being played on a tuba. You know what I'm saying? It's just, you know, something is wrong. No, no. You may feel like you're completely out of sorts, but trust me, it's in harmony. 
It's in harmony. There may be others who are singing their part and their life. When you look over, it looks so beautiful and yours somehow seems distorted. It's not. Right? T tell me you haven't seen how the things come together in the end. Right? You know, it gets all sort of screwy and you're thinking, what in the world is going on? And, you know, and, and then you see God's conclusion in those circumstances and then God's conclusion in the next one and God's conclusion on the next part. It's a beautiful work that the Lord has orchestrated. You know, and just the fact that we were so ugly and vile and wretched in our sin and our trespasses and now he's brought us to this place. The wonderful thing that he is creating and it has created. You know, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This poema, this uh, workmanship for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So therein is that statement that the resurrected life, the newness of life, should result in works. You know, for those that try to somehow make Paul at odds with what James is saying, James is saying, you know, uh, faith. Uh, is accompanied by works, and Paul, oh, Paul's just saying it's by grace. No, they're both saying the same thing. You know, you are saved by grace, not of works, as any man should boast, because it's going to result in good works. There are going to be good, if there are not good works in your life, if there's not a newness of life, then we're back to that discussion about you need to be concerned about whether you're living a newness of life, you're born again or not. If you're not, well, you know, living that newness of life and not seeing these good works done, then you really do need to take account of yourself and consider what's going on. You know, we've been created for good work, good works in Christ Jesus, right? Not just not just good works, not just out there changing every you know flat tire. You're created for good works in Christ. You know, there's a there's a brother I've been around for years. And he just can't keep himself in church. And, and one of the things I notice early on with him, I'm talking like 18 years ago when my relationship started with him, is he's really into good works, but he's also really into bad works. You know, just can't put the pot pipe down. Can't put the beer down. Can't get the fornication out of his life. You know, he'll talk to you every time you run into him. Every time I run into him, you know, he talks to me about, you know, I just, oh, such a blessing from the Lord. I, I literally was able to help a guy change his flat tire the other day. You know, then when I talked to him, didn't share Christ with him at all. You know, in his mind, I'm doing good works. Uh, there's a whole lot more to the good works that are being referred to here than just doing good things. You know, what a terrible thing that... You know, what would it profit a man that he had gained, you know, an inflated tire and lost his soul? You know, you changed a man's tire. How about you share Christ with him? I mean, it would have been better if you had just stopped where he was changing his tire. Let him change his tire and preach the gospel to him. And, I mean, you're going to benefit him for eternity. You know, someday he's going to need a new tire. That tire that you helped him change pretty much going to be meaningless at some point. You change his life? Now that's, that's the significant thing. These are the good works. Good works in Christ Jesus. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, 
who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now, Paul is saying that with a sort of mocking edge because he, he gives us that clarity of the people that are called the circumcision are not actually the circumcision unless their heart has been circumcised from the sinfulness of the flesh, right? So that's why he's putting these qualifying things around it. You know, those who are called uncircumcision, right? Because he's speaking to a group of Christians. So they're not the uncircumcised. And he's referring to those who are called the circumcision, but they're actually living in their sins, many of them. So he's putting the quote brackets and the term called in, in front of each of these, you know, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, who were once uh, uh, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near by the blood of Christ. So very often. So this separation uh, that you know was the Gentiles, and, and in this, he throws some hints in here already. He's going to talk about the unity that's in Christ, but right here he's already throwing out some hints that he's talking about you know, the promises and the fulfillments and the hope, these are the things that unite us. And it doesn't have anything to do with circumcision or uncircumcision or religious practices versus non-religious practices. It doesn't pertain to any of those things at all. You know, what we're talking about is the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, so often what is portrayed about the blood of Christ is just that. You know, it's some butchery. You, know, you, you know, make as graphic a movie you can about the bloodshed. Just show, you know, all the details. That's really not what we're talking about in the discussion of the blood of Christ. That blood of Christ, right? Think more about it this way in, in this passage here. Right? Racism. Yet all these discussions, you know, out through history about, oh, the superior race, oh, the inferior race, all that nonsense. And we hear the scripture telling us that not only is there one race and one family, there is one blood. Right? There's one blood. The human race has one blood. We are all of the same blood. And they can separate our blood, and my blood can be as useful to you as the next person's blood, even if you have a different blood type. You know, direct transfusion, different thing. I'm, not, I'm just talking about we are all of one blood. There is not a difference of race. We are the human race together, all of us. The blood of Jesus Christ flows through the life of every Christian. Rather than being the murderous butchery and description of graphic violence, there, think more of it as the sacrificial life that pours through each of us. This gift that we're given, this salvation, this grace of God flows to us in the blood of Christ. This, this is how we have accomplished, how we have achieved, how we have received 
the salvation that comes from Jesus. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one. So now you can see here in this next little section how he was drawing that together. Circumcision? Uncircumcision? No, blood of Christ binding us together, making us one. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. They were, oh, the Jews especially, that was like bing in their mind at that moment because there was the wall of separation inside the temple. The temple grounds had the wall that the Gentiles could not come beyond, right? Above the wall, I'm paraphrasing, above the doorway into the Jewish entrance was posted aside, I'm paraphrasing, but it basically said any Gentile that passes upon this point, it does so upon the pain of death. We'll kill you if you pass through this threshold. You cannot come into uh, the the entrance and the, the residence of the Jews. The Gentile has to stay on this side of the wall. Here, Jesus has broken down the middle wall of separation. There is no segregation of Jews from Gentiles or Gentiles from Jews. And you got to understand that. They had... You know, a mutual animosity towards one another. It wasn't just that Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles hated Jews just as much. There's great violence between them. Uh, The the Gentile world despised the Jews because they, they thought them so arrogant and so strange in their religious behaviors. So they had a murderous hatred towards Jews. Jews, likewise, you know, looking at it like they were the only source of salvation and and Gentiles were nothing more than fuel for hell, and and uh, they just as soon see them dead as anything else. They had a great hatred for one another, and and the common hood uh, of Jesus' blood saving them both is what binds them together. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, I want to do something with that verse uh, that I hope you can make note of for yourself as you have occasion to minister to people who try to take people from Christianity back to the law. You know, if, if people are saying, oh, you got to worship on Saturday and you can't eat pork and, you know, they got all these restrictions and rules and regulations. If you, uh, uh, you know, come across those people, I, I want you to remember this verse. There are many others we've talked about, but this one has a great pertinence to the situation. Verse 15. In your Bible, hopefully, several of these words are in italics. It doesn't mean that they're inappropriately in the passage. It just see it just means that they're there in order to lend you a greater understanding of this verse. If you remove the words and you just leave the comma pause, it gives a slightly more accurate understanding, I believe. So, verse 15 having abolished in his flesh the enmity, 
the law of commandments in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man, the two making peace. Jesus Christ, for, for those people that are like, oh, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, that's why we need to keep the law. This verse is specifically telling us that he's abolished the law. Right? He didn't destroy it, right? We know that, right? He came to complete it, and thereby a better word would even be annulled. Right? Paul uses that elsewhere in regard to keeping the law in saying that as long as a husband is alive, then the wife is bound legally to that husband. If he passes away, then the legal binding of the marriage is annulled. Right? The law has been annulled in Jesus Christ. The, the Gentiles did not observe the law. They did not. They did not worship on Saturday. They did not follow the ordinance. They did not have the law. They worshiped Jesus Christ alone. They functioned as Gentiles and they accepted salvation by grace. The whole of what's being said here is salvation by grace for Gentiles and for Jews. Everybody gets saved by grace all along the way, all through history. It's always only been grace. It hasn't been through keeping the law. Never has it been by keeping the law. You know, Les Feldick, who is teaching all of these people on the internet, that, oh, we only need to listen to the teachings of Paul. And, and in that, he doesn't even recognize a bunch of his followers are now saying, yeah, the Jews have their own source of salvation, and we get it by grace. No, we all get it by grace. It's, it's the same message for all of us, that, that salvation comes through grace. The early Christians called themselves either the third race or the new race. That's how they, before they referred to themselves as Christians, they would refer to themselves as being the new race. Not Jew, not Gentile. We are the third race. We're the new race. It's quite a thought. It's an interesting thing. Uh, John 17, verse 21, right? This is actually the Lord's Prayer, isn't it, right? We refer to the disciples' prayer when they say, teach us how to pray. And, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, we say, uh, you know, that's the Lord's Prayer. And okay, it's the Lord's Prayer. But John chapter 17 is actually the Lord's Prayer, where he prays. He prays for the Father's will, his own will, his own outlook for uh, the disciples, for what they're going to face, and he even prays for us. In uh, John chapter 17, that's your extra credit homework to go home and review John chapter 17 and, and see how it uh, bolsters what we're reading here. But he makes that statement in John 17 verse 21 that they all may be one. That's his prayer. Jesus Christ's prayer as he's about to enter into the crucifixion and the death of the cross is that all believers would be bound together as one. Jews, Gentile, the whole would be bound together as one. If that's Jesus Christ's dying desire, how much more should it be ours? 
unity, the bond in peace of Jesus Christ's blood, and that they all be one. John 17, verse 21, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Wouldn't it be great right now, even, and I mean it, even as certain churches are not opening up and certain churches are opening up and all of these different things are going on through the body of Christ, if we would all just be bound together in the commonwealth of salvation. Preaching that, sharing that, lovingly demonstrating that to the world. That'd that'd be a wonderful thing for the world to experience from us right now. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. One body through the cross. Not as John Hagee is saying down there in Texas. Oh, the Jews have their Abrahamic covenant and that's their source of salvation. And the Christians have their last supper covenant in the blood and the bread. And and those salvations are different for each group. No, there's one common salvation. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross, putting to death the enmity between them. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Right? Who did? Jesus. Uh, I, I, I keep bringing up this Les Feldick, and if you don't know who he is, praise God. But when you run into people who have been led astray by this guy, remember that I make mention of them right here. Right? The Jews who were near were preached to by Jesus, and the Gentiles who were afar off were preached to by Jesus. The same message which is the cross. There isn't a different message for Gentiles than there is for Jews. There's not a different preaching. Feldick is literally telling us, do not read or study the Old Testament or the teachings of Jesus. All you need to study, all you're supposed to study as a Christian are the teachings of Paul because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. You're a Gentile, aren't you? So all you should be studying are the teachings of Paul. Even though Paul said, I have not neglected to teach you the whole counsel of God's word, which is the Old and the New Testament, right? Even though Peter, who was an apostle, referred to the teachings of Paul as scripture, you're a little short-sighted on this whole approach. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, a couple of things there. The prophets he's referring to, and then the discussion of the cornerstone. The prophets he's referring to are definitely the prophets of the Old Testament. More significantly, he's actually referring to, maybe even more Directly, he's referring to the New Testament prophets. 
those that were prophets amongst them. You know, we have a, a, the list of a few names, right? We have Agabus. We have Stephen. We're told, or, or excuse me, Philip rather, and we told that both of his daughters were uh, both prophetesses. So there are those in the New Testament who were functioning as prophets. And within that, the whole teaching of the New Testament scripture and its prophecy, certainly John, right? The book of Revelation is the writing of a prophet. Uh, so, you know, now the cornerstone that's referred to here, these foundation stones that are referred to, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, now go to the book of the Revelation, read, uh, written by that prophet John, and see him describe the foundation stones of heaven, which have the inscriptions and the names of the apostles upon them. Was Peter not a prophet when he said to Ananias and Sapphira, you've not lied to men, but the Holy Spirit, and they dropped dead, right? New Testament prophets. That's not just my weird analysis of this. Uh, almost all of the commentators recognize and agree that this is not just a reference to the Old Testament prophets. With that, we should reject those that claim the office of prophet today. Certainly Christians prophesy today. Certainly believers are capable of speaking for the Lord today. But as far as them establishing foundations of doctrine, that's done. Right? We can take the writings of Paul. We can take the writings of Peter. We can take the writings of Jude and we can say this is foundational doctrine to the Christian faith. You know, anybody that you know claims that office today, what they're merely going to do, if they're in tr you know in truth accurate, is they're going to agree with what these prophets have established as foundational principles and doctrines of our faith. I bring it up, you guys, not to just find some little nugget here and go. Have you ever noticed that little detail? I bring it up because they really should totally brush off. These guys that are today claiming, oh, I'm an apostle. Oh, I'm a prophet. Have the boldness to just laugh and say, no, you're not. Stop it. Cut it out. Because, because they're leading people astray. I've never met one who claimed the office who then taught accurately. The ones that want everybody to bow down, oh, I'm an apostle. Whoa, everybody's supposed to shake and tremble. And the next thing that comes out of their mouth is usually junk. What we need to understand are these prophets. And what they set down for us that is so foundational for us to live by, you know, most significantly, others also, but most significantly, the, the prophet of Paul. The prophet of Peter, the prophet of James, the prophet of Jude, the prophet of John, who wrote and taught us foundational elements about the coming of Christ. You know, think about how much people are denying that right now. You know, you're hearing a lot of stuff about prophecy. You're also hearing a lot of denunciation of prophecy right now. 
No, we need to hold foundationally to these things. And then that statement about the cornerstone. Cornerstone is more decorative today, right? You know, they put the little cornerstone in the building and they chiseled the you know, year that it was finished there. And everybody goes, oh, look, the cornerstone. Cornerstone in this day, structures were very often built in such a way that if you pulled that cornerstone out, the whole building's coming down. Everything keyed into that cornerstone. Very often when they would set it, that was the survey line. Everything else got measured from that position. Where does such and such a wall go in it? You go find the cornerstone and all your lines get stretched back from there. And that's how you can know where that next thing is going to occur. Christ is the thing that holds everything together and everything needs to be measured from. From. So when, you know, certain bands are, you know, putting worship music together and their doctrine is messed up, you can say, you aren't holding to the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. When denominations have abandoned the tenets and principles of the faith. You can say you have not measured properly to where you should be setting the foundation of your church. Everything needs to be measured from fitted into leaning upon its weight in Christ. No other place. These things need to be Firm, foundational, built, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, the Spirit in us. We, it is such a shame to watch the church today defiling itself and then claiming to be, you know, this is spiritual. Right, we're an open and affirming church, and we endorse homosexuality, and we've ordained, you know, homosexual ministers, and we're just we're so progressive. Yeah, you've expanded beyond that which is Christ. You've fallen outside the measuring line of our structure. You no longer belong. You are, in fact, estranged from Him. The church needs to understand that, fitted together. Yeah, growing, right. In power, in strength, in density, in expansion. Sure, growing, yes, but not beyond that which is Christ. So that's our study in chapter 2 for this evening. So why don't we pray, and uh, we'll pick up right there next week. Father, we thank you again for your great love and your work in our lives, and we ask that you would continue to minister to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Bless us, keep us, protect us, provide for us, Lord. Give us your wisdom that we would know how to serve you in these days ahead until we're together again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.